In the mid-19th century, Utica, New York, was home to more people than major urban centers like Detroit, Cleveland, and Chicago. But although it became a largely remote industrial town, it continued to grow, reaching 100,000 people in 1930. And then, like many Rust Belt cities, it went into a decline and was nearly destroyed by depopulation and arson, bottoming out in 2000 at 60,000 people. That was before an influx of refugees from war-torn homelands like Vietnam, Burma, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Somalia, and Iraq arrived. In her new book, City of Refugees, the story of three newcomers who breathe life into a dying American town, journalist Susan Hartman tells the story of the role those refugees have played in Utica's revival. It's published by Beacon Press and brings Susan Hartman to our show now. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Oh, well, this is a fascinating story. You, you follow three immigrants in Utica, New York, a, a mix of nationalities and ages. Where were they from? Okay, one was a young Somali Bantu girl. One was an Iraqi interpreter. And one was a Bosnian woman who was a baker. And you met all three during your first week of reporting? What even brought you up there? Yeah, well, I had gotten a call out of the blue from a stranger who knew I often wrote about immigrant communities. And he called me up and he said, did you know Utica had become a city of refugees? I had gone to school nearby in the 70s near Utica, and I had a kind of affection for the You the went city. to Kirkland College. Yes, to Kirkland. And this was a professor from Hamilton. Mm-hmm. And it it was a very rundown city. And it kind of reminded me of a, a kind of sleeping beauty because there were beautiful old buildings. But it was the city was so down and out that mostly the downtown storefronts were empty or they had soup kit, kitchens, social service organizations in them. And that that was the Utica I knew. You couldn't get a coffee on a Saturday. And he he said, if you come up sometime, I'll show you around. So I was very curious. And I think he called me on a Tuesday. On a Friday, I was in his car. And he showed me around a city that really had been transformed. Did Dick Cavett once call Utica the jewel in the navel of New York? Did he mean that as a compliment? <laughs> no, it, it's got so much bad press, and Utica has been a butt of jokes for so long. It was called and, Sin City at one time because uh, its uh, political corruption and organized crime was rant- rampant. Yes, it was notorious for that, and it's had a lot of very colorful um, mayors. Um, actually, Mayor Hanna once said that he, he had a nightmare that he was the mayor of Utica. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, it, it it suffered from this bad reputation. But when I got up there, as we zoomed around the city for an afternoon, I saw things like a um, an old abandoned church had been transformed into a soaring mosque. There were there were new little ethnic restaurants. Um, There was this diversity and color that had not been there. And 
so the refugees really infused it with with life and has was a big factor in bringing the city back to life. Of course, refugees have been part of the story from the start. The area was originally a river settlement of the Oneida, Mohawk, and Onondaga Indian nations, members of the Haudenosaunee or Iroquois Confederacy. So the first immigrants were actually European-American settlers from New England during and after the American Revolution. Yes, absolutely. It has always been a city of immigrants. So at the turn of the century, there were immigrants from Ireland, Poland, Hmm. Italy, Germany, and they came and worked in the mills, thousands of them. And then when the mills closed, GE and other big manufacturing plants came and they continued to employ these immigrants. So the residents... You you meant textile mills? How long were the textile mills thriving in the area? Yeah, the textile mills, I think, pretty much until 1950, Hmm. um, then they left. And then in came the plants. And then by 1960, the plants were already laying off people. And this was true across the Rust Belt. So this was true in in Detroit and Youngstown, Dayton. Um, Buffalo. Yeah, Buffalo. Buffalo lost half its population. So and then and then, of course, there were fires as people left the city because there was no work. Arson became a huge problem in all of those cities, and it was a terrific problem in Utica. Arson for insurance? Yes. Um, People, some people would hire poor poor residents, you know, especially landlords, absentee landlords would hire people to torch their buildings. Sometimes people would torch their own homes. Um, and then, of course, there are fires that just sprang up naturally when when homes are neglected because people can't care for them. So the city was emptying out. It's approximately 95 miles west northwest of Albany, 55 miles east of Syracuse, 240 miles northwest of New York City. Did that make it conveniently located in terms of transportation when industry was thriving? Yes, it it really was a hub, and it was on the Mohawk River, and it, you know its downtown really reflected that. It was filled with big department stores and a, a fancy New York style steakhouse that people loved. Uh, so it was a thriving hub, which is it's really hard to picture that, especially in the seventies, eighties, nineties. Because it really was an extremely depressed city, just as, you know, Buffalo, other upstate mm. cities were. Now, when it, when the textiles were thriving and then uh, manufacturing was thriving, was uh, did the city draw immigrants as well to work in those plants? Oh, yeah, absolutely. They were the ones who were employed um, and they mostly settled in East Utica, hmm. and then East Utica became the section that refugees first came to, and, and still they're still 
many refugees there, although they're spread out over the city. Um, but when the immigrants came, they started in the factories and then often they would open their own small businesses. So people would tell me stories about a, a, a grandfather who came, worked in the factories or sold lemon ices on the street and then eventually opened a salamaria. So the residents were used to seeing and hearing stories about difficult beginnings of their own ancestors and then assimilation. But where were the original uh, immigrants coming from? Were they more likely European immigrants from from Italy yes, they were and, and Germany? Yes, Germany, Russia, um, Poland. You, you know, originally not not so much Russia. Um, there were also uh, merchants from the Middle East, from Lebanon. So there's a very old Lebanese immigrant community in Utica. Yes, the Italians were the largest group, and and there's still a, a, a big Italian-American immigrant community. And then following the Vietnam War, didn't refugees from Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos come to Utica because uh, the, of the low cost of living there? Yeah. the It's actually an interesting story. How did Utica become a center for refugees? And it began really with one woman, Roberta Douglas, a local woman, who was very concerned about the treatment of Amerasians in Vietnam. She felt they were mistreated. So she brought over in the early 70s one Amerasian man. And then she brought over other Amerasians, hundreds. And then other individuals and organizations became involved and a refugee center started, a, a wonderful refugee center. And then waves of refugees came. So the it's now called the center, this refugee center, and they have settled 17,000 refugees over the years. Uh, but uh, originally uh, mostly from Asia, when did uh, other places like Bosnia, uh, Burma, Somalia, Iraq start? Yeah. When so did they start the, coming in? Yeah, in the early 1990s, hmm. the the Bosnians came, about 4,500 of them. That's a really a, a large amount. That's and because they, of turmoil in Yugoslavia. Be, yes, because of the Balkan conflict, yes. So they came. And then in the 2000s, People started coming from Burma, mostly the Karen, and they're a, an ethnic minority that have been persecuted by the military. So they are the second largest community, and they have a strong foothold in Utica. But yes, then also those from the former Soviet Union, from Poland, Cambodia. Yes, so there have been all these waves, Sudan. And now Utica is hoping to welcome and already has welcomed some refugees from Ukraine and Afghanistan. Oh, are, is one of the attractions that uh, uh, not for the refugees, but for Utica, that uh, the salaries are low and so there's a low cost of living there? Well, 
Mm-mm. First of all, there's work now, which is fantastic. In what kinds of industries? Okay, so Chobani is a is a big employer of refugees. That's the yogurt factory in New Berlin, which is about an hour outside of Utica. And um, Churning Stone, which is a large resort and casino, is the largest employer. And they are so anxious to have refugees. They feel they're such good workers that they're now building special housing for refugees. Very nice one to three bedroom apart landscaped apartments now, in terms of the the ability to live cheaply, initially, it was very easy to live in Utica. Um, there were these abandoned houses, and that's really how the transformation of Utica began. The Bosnians had building skills, and they came with educations, middle-class backgrounds, and they they bought hundreds of houses for very little these houses that had been neglected or abandoned and they restored them. They, they stood on roofs, they built porches and landscaped them. So it turned around the look of many neighborhoods. So of course this had a, a big effect on hmm. arson, on everything. And those, the residents who had stayed in Utica were very grateful. And then as other communities have come in, they also, have have been able to, let's say, especially the Burmese have been buying homes. Even the Somali Bantus who are coming from the camps and who have a longer learning curve in terms of adjusting to, to, to this new community, over half of them now own homes. So well, you, said, yeah, you said when you were a student at Kirkland College in the 1970s, it was a sleepy town. Were you surprised when you came there years later to discover how different it was? Has, it, has this led to growth for things like the colleges and universities, cultural institutions as well? Well, yeah, I, I was stunned by the, the difference. And that's one reason I got so hooked into the project for so long. You know, I spent almost a decade reporting on Utica and these three families. So the presence of the refugees, it it stimulated lots of things to happen. Um, You know, it takes a while before a new population coming in can enter the schools in terms of community colleges and colleges and universities, but they have a big presence at the local community college. And um, so, yeah, they've stimulated the town. The the hope in many Rust Belt places is that if refugees come and there's work for refugees, the cities begin to turn around and then others begin to want to be in that city again. And that's definitely happening in Utica, where, let's say, young people who left this depressed town went away to school and stayed where they were, whether that's New Haven or Rochester, Binghamton, wherever they went, Florida, hearing that Utica is doing better and seeing it on visits, seeing there's more work now, they they're coming back. 
My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org, is Susan Hartman, whose book the, that we're discussing is City of Refugees, the story of three newcomers who breathed life into a dying American town. It is published by Beacon Press. And you follow uh, these three new uh, newcomers over the course of eight years as they and their families adjust to their new lives in America. Uh, so tell us a bit about how you met, Sa- Sa- is it Sadia? Yes, Sadia. Sadia, Ali, and Mercia uh, yeah. during your first week of reporting. Yes, I did. You know, as a reporter, you, you throw out a wide net. You know, you want to talk to a lot of people. I, I had a feeling I wanted to do a long project. It began with a story for the New York Times on the whole city and refugees. I wasn't so much profiling um, particular refugees. But I, once that, that article was finished, I kept going with the story because that first week I had met these three refugees that really interested me so much. And Sadia really uh, w- was one of the big reasons I, I entered the story. She is part of a very big family. Initially, there were 11 children in her family. Now there are 14 so it's a big Somali Bantu family. They lived in a, a huge old house that actually had been a at one point a drug rehabilitation center that was then abandoned. And the family came in, fixed it up. There there was a, a, a an elegance to the to the place. It probably once had been kind of a mansion. And she was very rebellious. She she wanted to be, in some ways, an American teenager. And her mother, who herself is kind of, has broken a lot of rules and kind of a maverick. But She's she a wanted single her, mother. Or was she a single was a mother single, a single mother, very independent, um, a pioneer in a lot of ways. But she wanted her daughters to be good Somali Bantu girls. And that means staying inside mm. a lot helping with all the children, doing homework, not going out, not going to malls, movies, not running out to get a Subway sandwich. <laughs> and other daughters, she's a, a wonderful mother and very respected in her family, but other daughters were more obedient and Sadia butted heads with her mom. And that just struck me as very interesting. I could relate to her very well. And she had a lot of big dreams. So... That's one reason I kept going with the story. I and and, and Sadia's mother kicked her out. Yes, she did kick her out. They had a big fight over a wedding that Sadia wanted to go to. These big Somali Bantu weddings are very exciting for young people, and it's a chance to meet your faraway cousins. It's a very social time. And she wanted to go to this one particular wedding the mother didn't want her to. And they had an argument over it, and it, it kind of got out of hand. And the mother kicked the, her out, locked the door. And I don't think she meant it as a permanent thing. I think she was just furious. But Sadia, of course, took that very hard, and she stayed away for weeks. And she really 
separated herself from the family in a lot of ways. So I was very curious to see, would this resolve, would this drama within the family resolve? So that was very interesting for me. You were told that hardworking black people have noticed in Utica that historically they didn't get the niceties and access. Um, don't any African Americans feel the, the refugees have been given more opportunities and support not available to them? People like Sadia's family, or, um, or are they, or are Sadia's family also victims of that kind of racism? I well, think. I, I think that the city has really reached out to refugees. Not every city does, but Utica is very proud of their reputation. Um, of welcoming refugees, and that's true in general. Although some refugees have had a, an easier time than others. For instance, the Bosnians who came from middle class backgrounds and have white skin had an easier time being accepted initially than the Somali Bantus who have black skin and came, you know, never having had a chance to go to school in the camps much had and not use bathrooms and kitchens and things that, you know, obviously are part of modern life. So they had more of a struggle. But the African-Americans, what some feel is that they have a different history, a different background. They have not been reached out to in the same way. They don't have much political leadership in the city in terms of their own representation. Um, so, yeah, it's been a struggle for them from the beginning. They've been in Utica a long time. On the other hand, refugees live side by side in certain communities with African-Americans, and they get along as neighbors. But there there can be this underlying feeling of um, having been left out. Well, and, I mentioned earlier that the area was originally a river settlement of the Oni of of uh, various members of the Iroquois Confederacy. Is there a uh, a Native American presence there anymore? No, not really. Nope. So they were pushed out totally. <laughs> <laughs> yes, which is true of right most places in America. Oh, you mean Native Americans? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that they have been, yeah, they don't have a presence in many of the places where they once were. Um, but I think this the city, it's a little city. And one thing you can say about it is it's an open city. They, they have a mayor who does listen although the African-American community would like him to listen perhaps harder. But it is possible to reach out to people in City Hall. The, the community council is very active. Um, yeah, so it's a, it's a bit unusual in that if you want to speak with someone in political life, you can. You mentioned that Bosnians have had it better. Uh, one of the other people you profile is Mircea Omarajic, uh, who fled Bosnia in the 1990s. And she's the owner with her husband of a place called the Yumalicious Cafe and Bakery. 
Yeah. <laughs> but she yeah. really has pretty much integrated, hasn't she? She teaches English at the Mohawk Valley Resource Center for Refugees. Yeah, for many years she was an ESL teacher. And then at night she would bake. And she had a home bakery in, in on the first floor of her house. So she really had two full-time jobs. Um, along with four children. Along with four children. And that's typical, really, of how hard so many refugees work. You know, I saw this over and over again. Um, so, yes, she is assimilated in a lot of ways and feels very much a part of the community. And yet she, too, like most refugees, you know, she has talked to me um, in a very poignant way about, let's say she will meet someone at a party. And instead of being asked, where do you live? What do you do? She says the first question people will ask her is, where are you from? Where, where are you from? And that hurts her to the core. I'm so and embarrassed because I can't tell you how many cab drivers I've asked that question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, all of us. Yeah. Um, and what she says is, do I have to put it on my T-shirt? You know, <laughs> I'm Bosnian. I'm Muslim, you know. Yeah, she would like to be seen as an American first. And that's how she sees herself. And then she also sees that when she goes back to Bosnia, and this is true for most refugees, for many refugees going home, when she's there, it's not as if her family and um, old neighbors see her as Bosnian. They see her as American. They feel she has more money. Um, she's not quite of them. She can't quite understand their troubles. Mm -hmm. And so her feeling is, where do I belong? Where's my niche? And she, she has a wonderful sense of humor. So she laughs about it and says, I'm a refugee. I always will be a refugee. But it's painful. Well, they also uh, had to deal with the pandemic, trying to uh, maintain a business uh, during the pandemic. Uh, has Ut was Utica hit particularly hard? You know, Utica, it started more slowly than it did in New York, which was like a, a brush fire. So it started slowly. But yes, it, it did get very badly hit. And, you know, you have these large families where people are so used to socializing um, within the within the family, within these extended families. So it was hard for people not to not to do that, to cur curtail that. Yes, yeah, so they did get hit. But one thing that came out was the the extraordinary resilience of these refugees. Um, they have been through so much. And let's say Mercia, she had been struggling years to open the cafe. She opens. She has this glorious opening. TV comes. The mayor comes. They cut a ribbon. And then a month later, it's locked down. It closes. So what she did was there was no time to mourn. They, you know, just as many restaurants did, they did take out. They hustled. Her children got jobs, other jobs. They had been helping in the restaurant as well. So, you know, as they may do. And the wonderful thing is the restaurant is a big, big success. Because it's unique, actually. There aren't too many Bosnian restaurants <laughs> uh, anywhere in New York State. Uh, the third person you covered, 
uh, I found particularly interesting in, in other ways. Ali Sarhan, he'd been an English interpreter in Baghdad, had a good job with ABC News, but had to leave behind his aging mother and two sisters, uh, two sisters in 2018 when he received threats. What, from the Taliban? It was from insurgents. Um, and his his brother had been, who was who was a journalist, had been pulled off a bus and, with two nephews and disappeared. So the family had already been hard hit, yes, but he was threatened. And he stayed a bit longer than maybe was wise. He got a, a, he continued to get death threats and then and then came out. Yeah. But he's left his American girlfriend and returned to Iraq, hasn't he? Yeah. And again, this is somewhat typical of refugees, this this pull home. So even though he has very strong feelings for Utica and he started a life here with a wonderful woman who, who was born here named Heidi, who had grown children and she really loved loves him. Uh, they have they had a lovely apartment and he was getting to know especially her daughter who's a teenager and making a bond with her and then he felt pulled home by stuff his aging mom was going through and also because he is very adamant about doing anti-terrorism work he he took a contract went back as an interpreter for the Allied forces. And he was doing very important work and that that made him very happy. He was in the green zone. It was a very difficult living situation. He's pretty much in a cell. He lived, it's very Spartan. They were not allowed to leave the base. Um, And he did it for three years. He would come back for visits and then he'd be pulled back and then he decided he'd had enough during um, a time of great turmoil in Iraq. And he came back, they bought a house, and yet he still feels pulled back. And he went back to see his mom and he's considering another contract to do more anti-terrorism work. So, but doesn't he also say he fears he has PTSD? That would, yes, he does. That would have a major he, impact on what he can do. True, but he um, he feels well enough to do the work. You know, obviously it's traumatizing to be in a war zone. And a very close friend of him was killed in a bomb bombing incident. But yeah, he feels well enough and that he's effective and has a lot to give. But, you know, he's not sure if he will go back because it's... It's a big commitment, but there's that pull. So we'll see what happens. But as my book winds up, his story is not complete. Mm. He has a foot in one world and in another. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org.
hope you're enjoying my conversation with Susan Hartman. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of her book, City of Refugees, the story of three newcomers who breathed life into a dying American town. Just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and then the number 2, WBAI.org, or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at Lodge, and we thank you very much. And return now to Susan Hartman. Her book, City of Refugees, the story of three newcomers who breathed life into a dying American town, is published by Beacon Press. Her cover stories and profiles have appeared in the New York Times, which actually got her started on this project, also Christian Science Monitor, Newsday. And she's published two books of poetry. She now uh, has uh, teaches uh, journalism. She's taught at Yale NYU, Barnard, and now at Columbia University School of the Arts. So uh, let's get back to the logistics of this. Um, how does one, how does an outsider gain the confidence of people who come from such different cultures? Well, it wasn't as hard as, as it sounds because I've been doing this for so long. You know, I've mostly written about immigrant groups and um, I, I think I'm also helped by the fact that I'm I'm small. I have a soft voice. Um, I I always hope that after a while, once a project like this begins, that in a way I kind of disappear, and the family that I'm observing just keeps going, ignoring me. Um, I'll be sitting in a corner of a couch. I write longhand, so I think that's less intrusive than taping. And um, yeah, I think that just by maybe being empathetic and respectful, it's it's just not such a hard thing. Would it hasn't been for me. Would it have been different if you'd been writing about immigrants living in a neighborhood in New York City or are is the uh, East Utica area that you talked about, Cornhill, similar to mm. neighborhoods in New York City? Well, s- certainly I've reported on a lot of different neighborhoods and groups in New York City. And it, for me, it was kind of a, a similar situation. You know, I think that refugees socialize in the home especially initially, they're not hanging out in cafes and restaurants. Um, They're visiting other families. So home is everything. Home is very important and home is sacred. So, you know, if, if you're reporting on refugee family, it may take a while before home becomes the place where you are doing the interviewing um, so let's say with one man who became a wonderful resource for me for more than eight years, Mohammed Ganiso, who's a leader in the Somali Bantu community. When it started out, we would meet in his truck. Hmm. He he had a trucking business. So we would sit in his truck 
all different seasons of the year. And that was fine with me. We also would sit on the stoops of the Somali Bantu Center and and other elders in his community did that as well. And I was comfortable doing that. That was so it's great. a matter of, of hanging around, wandering yeah. around, talking <laughs> with, with people, with strangers. Yeah, that's initially how things begin. And then let's say with Mohammed Ganiso, once he trusted me, um, he's there was a young woman who was giving a class in the back of the Somali Bantu Center. It was a Quran class. And I thought she was amazing. I enjoyed watching her teach. She also was a real character. And sometimes she would, like an older sister, she would scream at the kids if they got out of hand. But they really respected her. She had 45 little children in a room. I mean, to hold on to 45 children is remarkable. So he he knew I was interested in her. And then he said to me one day, would you like to meet that family, the family she's part of? And I said, yes. And then he told me the address and I went to the that address and it was Sadi who entered who answered the door. Mana, who taught that class I had observed, she was Sadi's older sister. So that's how I entered that family. And and then I was in. Then, you know, I just whenever I was able to get up to Utica, I visited them. And as the family grew, because those those young daughters would then have their own families, because I, I was on this project for so long, I would visit their households. But that's how how it begins, a kind of wandering and then entering a household. And yes. And were they reading what you were writing? No, people were not reading what I was writing, but I would explain what I was doing. Because also for so long, for for years, I was not writing the book. I was just reporting, and I had yeah, thousands of pages. But you were also writing in newspapers. They could have oh, seen yes. those articles. I was doing other stuff. I was working on other stories, absolutely. But I, um, but I did not show them what I was writing about them because it was just notes. And also, I did not. I didn't want to make them self conscious. They knew I was doing a, a book. They all gave their permission. They felt comfortable with it. Um, but it was only at the very end that I would and I would I would not always do this in a, in a piece. But because it was so personal, intimate, this story and went on for so long, I wanted them to know not not to be surprised or shocked by what was in it. And so then at the end, I read them chapters. Everybody heard what what part they were in. You've said, I'm quoting, I'm a miniaturist and love the main points of individuals' lives. Yeah, I, I'm i not a, a policy person or really a huge picture person. I'm fascinated by people's stories. And I feel that if you tell the story of an individual and do it well, it should resonate. And people can come up with their own conclusions. But let's say a, a powerful story about a young doctor beginning his residency, what he goes through, maybe saying many things about what other residents experience. 
You also spoke with firefighters, local officials, business owners, other community representatives, and say that you find Utica to be a very welcoming place. More than other cities upstate or or neighborhoods in New York City? Well, I, I think upstate is pretty welcoming, more so than, let's say, very, very large cities. But I feel Utica is especially welcoming. Um, and it's partly because, it's because I've lived I've lived in a number of towns upstate. Yeah. And I could tell you that uh, only a few people would ever remember me, even though I came into their their shops again and again or had some other contact with them. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I would say that Utica, there is a, a very much a small town vibe. Also, because of their history, because they've gone through such terrible downturns and then been thrown hopeful promises by uh, politicians that didn't work necessarily work out. So they've had they've had a lot of, um, in a way, kind of suffering. They're peculiarly tough breed Uticans, and I think also kind, also have a sense of humor about themselves and their city. And also because the neighborhoods are, were often very um, tied with dif- by different immigrant groups. You know, there's a close-knit quality and, you know, they, they're used to shopping in small stores. They're used to reaching out. If you walk into a I walked into a pastry shop, uh, an Italian pastry shop in Utica, toward the beginning of um, this this project, and a man came in to order some some stuff for a big family event, and he had gone to school with the woman who owned the shop, and she knew all his troubles, all the different events that he had celebrated through buying cakes and pastries. And and he knew her. So that's just typical of Utica. On the other hand, didn't the Utica Fire Department initially fail to communicate fire safety to Somali Bantu refugees who were used to cooking on hibachis instead <laughs> of on gas stoves? Yeah. So when the refugees started coming, it was it was a wave. There were large waves coming. And I think it took a while for the fire department, for the educational system to adapt. Um, so let's say with the fire department, okay, they're used to fires, arson, but they were used to people who knew how to use stoves. And it, it, it took a while and a very serious fire where a four-year-old Somali Banter girl almost died before it hit them, we have some real community outreach to do this. We have a, we have problems. We have to understand their culture. And they began to meet more often with the Refugee Center to run more um, meetings within the communities. And they got money so that they could um, to do that as well. My guest is Susan Hartman. Her book, City of Refugees, The Story of Three Newcomers Who Breathe Life into a Dying American Town, is published by Beacon Press. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM. 
and streaming live at WBAI.org. You've pointed out that, I'm quoting, most Americans haven't had contact personally with refugees. They feel worried and see them as people who will be a drain on the economy with huge families on public assistance. So what uh, impacted President Trump's attacks on immigrants and his slashing of the U.S. refugee program have on Utica? Utican refugees had a variety of responses. Some people were expecting family members to to come to get get on planes. There was uh, a granddaughter waiting for her grandfather. She'd been waiting years for him to come, so he couldn't come because of the policy. So things like that were stunning, um, and there were there was a certain amount of fear. Mercia, let's say, worried the Bosnian baker began to worry, would her family be put on a a list of Muslims? Mm. And his nationalistic language frightened her. It reminded her of Bosnia, of what what happened during the the Balkan War. On the other hand, didn't Ali vote for Trump in 2016? Yes. Yes. And then Ali, and I'm sure there were others as well, he voted for Trump because he's he's used to Saddam Hussein, he he knew about authoritarian figures and Trump did not seem so bad. I think he kind of tuned out the nationalistic jargon and he felt that his economic policies would be good for upstate. So he was hopeful that he might um, change the economic landscape and he voted for him. So there was a variety of responses. Some people were, some refugees were so busy taking care of their kids, uh, working jobs that they actually didn't even tune in that much and felt secure because refugees have permanent status. And once they've come within five years, can apply to be citizens. So they themselves didn't necessarily feel they were going to be kicked out. So there was a, there was a, there were a lot of responses. Did Trump's policies have an impact on Utica's economy? Did the refugees see them as a threat? Well, the biggest impact on Utica was that the pipeline of refugees got cut. So all of the, there had been for years refugees steadily coming, working in the factories, then eventually opening small businesses. And this is something that had helped the city thrive. When he came, so starting in 2017, the pipeline is cut. Few are coming. Just the number was so drastically reduced. So companies needed workers. And so companies couldn't grow in the same way. Didn't uh, Oneida County, in which Utica is located, vote for Trump in 2020 as well? Yes. Oneida County is traditionally conservative, but East Utica, let's say Corn Hill, the area where refugees primarily live, they they did they voted Democratic. Yep. Mm-hmm. So the, that part of of Oneida voted for. Uh, uh, voted for Biden 
who has reversed Trump's attitudes and policies, hasn't he? Although he's still received criticism from refugee advocates for what they see as half measures regarding people fleeing the war in Ukraine. Yeah, so it isn't what many people have hoped, but it's better than what was happening with Trump. And the refugee center is getting set for to accept more refugees. But it's going to be a slow process because the system got broken. Hundreds of people who worked uh, in refugee centers and, you know, they were laid off. So the it, need, it needs to be rebuilt, the whole system of accepting refugees and um, preparing cities for them. So... Everyone is hopeful that it will happen, but it's not like turning on a switch. Have Ukrainian refugees chosen to live in in Utica? Yes, some Ukrainian refugees are there and some Afghans are there and they're, they're hoping to receive more. Once a community has a little foothold, then it's easier because um, there are people who can who can give a hand and the refugee center is wonderful. What they do is they give refugees their first home and apartment, that initial hot meal. They offer ESL classes and employment uh, counseling, cultural orientation, so many things. So what is the current situation in, in Utica? Uh, is industry thriving or is it still uh, an up and down situation? I think there's a a very healthy feeling in Utica now of possibilities. And there's a a kind of excitement and pride. Um, There are new restaurants. There's a fancy new Italian very sophisticated cafe. Um, the the state has poured money, so there's going to be money for infrastructure. They're getting ready to develop the harbor. Um, so yeah, there's there's a feeling of hopefulness. Of course, the whole country is experiencing um, economic worries right now, but Utica is is hopeful. Also, a chip manufacturer, Cree, came, which is employing people. So, you know, so they have tech now. And, yeah, they have their own hockey team, the Comets. Your book was released uh, over two months ago. So I'd imagine that a fair number of people in Utica have had an opportunity to read it. Have you gotten any feedback? (laughs) I think some people from what I've heard and people I've talked to in a launch I did there are very happy with it. Um, Yeah, and I've done local interviews there. Yeah, but it's surprising. People are really focused on their own lives. So I think it's a little abstract, the idea of even for the people who are in a book, I think it's it's a little hard to wrap your mind around it. The I book. think Mercia is one of the people who is m- most joyous about it um, and most amused about, 
you know, being in a book and having come from a tiny village and now kind of being the star of this book. Yeah, well, she can't complain about the way you have portrayed her. <laughs> the book is City of Refugees, a story of three newcomers who breathe life into a dying American town, published by Beacon Press. And my great thanks to Susan Hartman for talking about it with us today on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. If you want to recommend this show to anyone, just tell them to check out the podcast. You might also want to check us out on Twitter. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's give and then the number 2, WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. We need your help to keep bringing this unique in-depth content and to keep the station alive uh, during these troubled times. We, we pre present information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopez at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, City of Refugees, the story of three newcomers who breathe life into a dying American town by Susan Hartman. So why not Make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for 10 15 20 25 however many dollars a month you feel comfortable with until you decide you no longer want to do it, but it allows us to plan for the future. And we'll say thank you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. Either way, I hope you call right now because BAI relies totally on listener donations. We don't take foundation grants, which allows us to be free speech radio. Uh, and we are the only station in the New York Radio Dial that's 100% listener sponsored. Please help us stay alive and thriving with your tax deductible donation. And we hope that you can join us again tomorrow when our favorite language experts, Kathy and Ross Petras, will join us. We'll see you then. <laughs>